today as we have this opportunity to reflect on Christ being our hope that you'll be encouraged in your heart and you'll be challenged by the word of God as we we look and we say this is our hope our hope is in Jesus Christ and in Christ alone and what I'd like to do is just have a couple opportunities where we're going to read some scripture together sing some songs together as a congregation giving worship and praise to our holy and mighty and majestic God so let's go ahead and do that together. Let's sing a number or read a couple passages a little bit longer than we normally do, but a very good resurrection passage. Let's read from Luke chapter 24 together. Now on the first day of the week, very early in the morning, they and certain other women with them came to the tomb, bringing the spices which they had prepared. But they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. Then they went in and did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And it happened, as they were greatly perplexed about this, that, behold, two men stood by them in shining garments. Then, as they were afraid and bowed their faces to the earth, they said to them, 
Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but is risen. Remember how he spoke to you when he was still in Galilee, saying, The Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and on the third day rise again. Christ the Lord is risen today. Join me again in reading from Isaiah and First Peter. He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before his shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Let's go ahead and sing the resurrection hymn. Jerusalem, for 
the graves to fill with light as the angels announce Christ is risen. See the salvation plan brought in love, born in pain, pain and sacrifice. Fulfilled in Christ a man, for he lives, Christ is risen from the dead. See sing living hope we're going to dismiss the children at this time those sixth grade and below you can head out the back doors make your way to your junior churches at this time the rest of us we're going to sing living hope how great the chasm that lay between us how high the mountain i could not climb in desperation
about our hope, yet multitudes of people have lost their hope. Hope is a word of optimism and expectation that looks forward to a promising future. Hope is the expectation that everything is going to be all right. It is that divine part of us that keeps our eyes focused on the horizons ahead and helps us look toward tomorrow. Hope is the confident expectation of a guaranteed result. The resurrection is full of hope, and yet for a few short days, it seemed like hope was not simply fading, but hope was lost. The gospel writer Mark wrote, So two disciples went on ahead into the city and found everything just as Jesus had said, and they prepared the Passover supper there. In the evening, Jesus arrived with twelve disciples. As they were sitting around the table eating, Jesus said, The truth is... One of you will betray me, one of you who is here eating with me. Greatly distressed, one by one they began to ask him, I'm not the one, am I? He replied, It is one of you twelve, one who is eating with me now. For I, the Son of Man, must die, as the scriptures declared long ago. But how terrible it will be for my betrayer. Far better for him if he had never been born. As they were eating, Jesus took a loaf of bread and asked God's blessing on it. Then he broke it in pieces and gave it to the disciples, saying, Take it, for this is my body. And he took a cup and gave thanks to God for it. He gave it to them, and they all drank from it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the new covenant, poured out for many. I solemnly declare that I will not drink of the fruit of the vine again until that day when I drink it new, In the kingdom of God. Then they sang a hymn and went to the Mount of Olives. And they came to an olive grove called called Gethsemane. And Jesus said, Sit here while I go and pray. He took Peter, James, and John with him. And he began to be filled with horror and deep distress. He told them, My soul is crushed with grief to the point of death. Stay here 
and watch with me. He went on a little further and fell face down on the ground. He prayed that if it were possible, that this awful hour awaiting him might pass him by. Abba, Father, everything is possible for you. Please take this cup of suffering away from me. Yet I want your will, not mine. Then he returned and he found the disciples asleep. Simon, are you asleep? Couldn't you stay awake and watch with me even one hour? Keep alert and pray. Otherwise, temptation will overpower you. For though the spirit is willing enough, the body is weak. Then Jesus left them again and prayed, repeating his pleadings. Again, he returned to them and found them sleeping, for they just could not keep their eyes open. And they didn't know what to say. But when he returned to them the third time, he said, Still sleeping? Still resting? Enough. The time has come. I, the Son of Man, am betrayed into the hands of sinners. Up, let's be going. See, my betrayer is here. And immediately as he said this, Judas, one of the twelve disciples, arrived with a mob that was armed with swords and clubs. They had been sent out by the leading priests, the teachers of religious law, and the other leaders. Judas had given them a prearranged signal. You will know which one to arrest when I go over and give him the kiss of greeting. Then you can take him away under guard. As soon as they arrived, Judas walked up to Jesus. Teacher, he exclaimed and gave him the kiss. Then the others grabbed Jesus and arrested him. But someone pulled out a sword and slashed off an ear of the high priest's servant. Jesus asked them, Am I some dangerous criminal that you come armed with swords and clubs to arrest me? Why didn't you arrest me in the temple? I was there teaching every day. But these things are happening to fulfill what the scripture says about me. Meanwhile, all his disciples deserted him and ran away. So Pilate, anxious to please the crowd, released Barabbas to them. He ordered Jesus flogged, then turned him over to the Roman soldiers to crucify him. They dressed him in a purple robe and made a crown of long, sharp thorns and put it on his head. Then they saluted, yelling, Hail, King of the Jews! And they beat him with a stick. They spit on him and dropped to their knees in mock worship. When they were finally tired of mocking him, they took off the purple robe and put his own clothes on him again. Then they led him away to be crucified. Under the power of the cross. Oh, to see the dawn of the darkest day, Christ on the road to Calvary, tried by sinful man, torn and beaten man.
Simon, who was from Cyrene, was coming in from the country just then. And they forced him to carry the cross of Jesus. And they brought Jesus to a place called Golgotha, which means Skull Hill. They offered him wine drugged with myrrh, but he refused it. Then they nailed him to the cross. They gambled for his clothes, throwing dice to decide who would get them. It was nine o'clock in the morning when this crucifixion took place. A signboard was fastened to the cross above Jesus' head, announcing the charges against him. It read, The King of the Jews. Two criminals were crucified with him, their crosses on either side of his. And the people passing by shouted abuse, shaking their heads in mockery. Ha! Look at you now! They yelled at him. You can destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, can you? Well then, save yourself and come down from the cross. Even the two criminals who were being crucified with Jesus ridiculed him. He saved others, but he can't save himself. Let this Messiah, this King of Israel, come down from the cross so we can see it and believe him. At noon, darkness fell across the whole land until three o'clock. Then, at that time, Jesus called out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? bystanders misunderstood and thought he was calling for the prophet Elijah. One of them ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, holding up, holding it up to him on a stick so he could drink. Leave him alone. Let's see whether Elijah will come and take him down, he said. Then Jesus uttered another loud cry and breathed his last breath. And the curtain in the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. When the Roman officer who stood facing him saw how he had died, he exclaimed, Truly, this was the Son of God. Now the daylight flees, now the ground beneath, what makes as its Of the 
This all happened on Friday, the day of preparation, 
the day before the Sabbath. As evening approached, an honored member of the High Council, Joseph from Arimathea, who was waiting for the kingdom of God to come, gathered his courage and went to Pilate to ask for the body of Jesus. Pilate couldn't believe that Jesus was already dead, so he called the Roman military officer in charge and asked him. The officer confirmed the fact, and Pilate told Joseph he could have the body. Joseph bought a long sheet of linen cloth, and taking Jesus' body down from the cross, he wrapped it in the cloth, laid it in a tomb that had been carved out of the rock. Then he rolled a stone in front of the entrance. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where Jesus' body had been laid. Imagine the moment when death was defeated. Imagine the resounding power of his first breath with the rise of the chest, the burial clothes which were meant to confine him loosen their hold. The grave has lost its power. Imagine the authority forever settled on earth as his toes touched the ground, his feet once wounded for you and for me, now stand crushing the enemy's best laid plans. Death and hell have been defeated. Imagine the song that filled all of heaven as his voice once again resounded in the darkness, the same voice that called Lazarus, now commanding his own gravestone to be rolled out of the way. The word returned to flesh, alive forevermore. Imagine the blinding, blinding sunlight that streamed into the cave, greeting the light of the world as he walked out of the grave, victorious over darkness forever. Imagine the moment when death was defeated.
evening, when the Sabbath ended, Mary Magdalene, Salome, and Mary, the mother of James, went out and purchased burial spices to put on the body of Jesus. Very early on Sunday morning, just at sunrise, they came to the tomb. On the way, they were discussing who would roll the stone away from the entrance to the tomb. But when they arrived, they looked up and saw that the stone, a very large stone, had already been rolled aside. They entered the tomb, and there on the right sat a young man, clothed in a white robe. The women were startled, but the angel said to them, Do not be so surprised. You are looking for Jesus, the Nazarene, who was crucified. He isn't here. He has been raised from the dead. Look, this is where they laid his body. Now go and give this message to his disciples, including Peter. Jesus is going ahead of you to Galilee. You will see him there just as he told you before he died. I believe in the risen 
There's a story. It's probably been around for as long as humans have been able to tell stories. You've probably heard it. Because most of the time when people tell stories, they tell some version of this one. It goes a little something like this. There is a guy, and he meets a girl. And they fall in love. But it is a love that is preordained by the heavens, transcends time itself, redefines what love is. But something or someone tears them apart. Maybe it's an evil uncle, or a father, or a spurned and jealous lover, or even a natural disaster. But whatever it is, it tears our star-crossed lovers apart from each other. They struggle mightily, they overcome obstacles, they battle villains, they face their fears, and even get a little help from a comedic figure along the way. But they stop at nothing until they are together again at last, their love made that much sweeter for the hardships they have overcome. And everyone lives happily ever after, even the villains. There is a story. This one is older than time itself and is the genesis of all stories. You've probably heard it. It goes a little something like this. There is a God. And he takes the dark and formless shape of the universe. He carefully molds it, lovingly shapes it into a beautiful world that he populates with bizarre and amazing creatures. Then he creates man. And this God, the creator of all, loves the man he has made. It's a love that rips apart the heavens, gives meaning to time, goes beyond any definition that any human could possibly create for what love is. But something tears them apart. It's no evil uncle or a spurned lover or a natural disaster. It's one of the greatest and rarest gifts that can be given, the ability to choose. And that's what makes this love so unimaginable, that the Almighty God gave this man he created a choice, a simple choice. And as a result, man struggles mightily, overcomes obstacles, battles villains, faces fears, all in the hope of regaining that undefinable love that he once had with his God. There is no happy ending, because no matter how hard he tries, man cannot recreate this love. There is a story, an old, old story. It's the end of all stories. You've probably heard it. It goes a little something like this. There is a man who is also God. And he comes to earth from his heavenly father, is born in the lowliest possible way, and lives a most extraordinary life. He performs miracles, he saves lives, he makes people better, and reminds man of a simple truth, that God loves him. That there can be a happy ending because the God of the universe wants to reconcile man unto himself. But there are villains in this story. They are jealous, they are angry, they are selfish, they are scared, they are lacking in any redeemable qualities. They are us. They are the very thing that God has sent his son to redeem. And they, we say, we know what we're doing. Let us take this man who's performed miracles on Sabbath, who preaches that every person has worth, who gives us new rules to live by rather than the laws we perverted. Let's take him and kill him. Because we know what we're doing. And because we knew what we were doing, we took him and nailed him one arm at a time to the cross. The most degrading and painful way ever in invented by us humans. And as he hung there, we insulted him, cursed him for loving us, because we knew what we were doing. Till finally, hanging from nails in his hands and feet, he looked up at his father, the creator, whom we have so desired to reconnect with, and simply said, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. And he died. 
And we took him down, we put him in a tomb, and rolled a giant rock into place like a giant period at the end of the story. There's a story about a man who died, the end. There's a story about a great man who died, the end. There's a story about a rich man who died, the end. There are countless stories about men who have died, the end. But there's this one story about a man who died and came back. Because putting a boulder of a period on the end of this story didn't end it. No, this man who was also God erased the period and began a new story, the likes of which has never been told and will never be told since. Because no other story has a person rising from the dead, and that's what makes this story so unique and wonderful. Because this God who created us, made us, loved us so much, he ripped apart time itself, completely rewrote the laws of the universe, bringing his son back to life for us who put him on a cross and killed him and crucified him. Dying for us was in and of itself enough to redeem us and show us how much he loved us, but bringing his son back to life, that changes the ending of the story to a new beginning, because at that moment, he went from a man named Jesus, who many considered to be the Messiah, and became the Christ, the risen Son of God, who has redeemed all of humanity, restored our relationship with God the Father, the Creator, who showed us what this unimaginable and unfathomable love looks like. Know the end, because this story continues forever, joyfully ever after into eternity. There is a story, you know it well, about a man or woman who has struggles in this life, who battles obstacles and giants and mortgages and dragons and bosses, and cancer. This person is given a choice to believe in the unimaginable love offered by the very creator of the universe and proven by a risen savior or not. So the question remains, how will the story end? You tell me. Jesus saves, see the sky alive. 
Aren't you thankful that Jesus saves? That the grave was not enough. The grave would not hold him. Could not hold him. And that is where we find our hope. Our hope is not this wishing, this, oh, I wish this is going to happen someday. Our hope in Christ is a guarantee. It is a secured fact in Jesus Christ and in Christ alone. We have a confidence that we will rise again. That we will enter into heaven. It is not a wish. It is a, it is a guaranteed hope that we have. And as we sing about hope and we talk about hope, where do we find our hope? We find our hope in Jesus Christ. There's a story that I read it when I was uh, just preparing for this and thinking about it. And it was really interesting. Dr. Paul Atkins was a leading lung surgeon uh, in the L.A. area. And as he, was, as he was there, one day he found himself looking at an x-ray. And as he looked at this x-ray, he looked at it and noticed it. And he realized that the x-ray he was reading was so riddled with cancer that he was reading this person's obituary. He's, he knew that, it, that the only diagnosis was a terminal one. And so as he looked at it, he noticed that that would be the case. The thing that was different about this, this x-ray for the first time in his life, he was reading his own x-ray. And as he looked at it, he realized, my life is, my life is over. In fact, the, his, the account that he, he writes before he passes, it was um, the, the final synopsis, the little the ending that they always give at the end of a story, said that he passed away five and a half months only after that x-ray. The, the kicker to the story is that he said in his writings, I guess I probably shouldn't have smoked a pack and a half a day for over 40 years. And he realized, he said, he, the thing he said about it, he said this, he said, I saw my mom, she smoked every day, didn't think it would be a big deal. Even though he knew better, being a lung surgeon, he, he knew better. If anyone knew better, it was, it was Dr. Atkins. But he did not apply that knowledge to himself. In fact, if we take the knowledge that we have and we do not apply it, it does us absolutely no good. We can know about Jesus Christ. We can know that he died on the cross for our sins. We can know that he was buried in a tomb and we can know that he rose again. And we can even say that's really neat and really special. But if we do not apply that truth to, to us, if you do not apply it to you personally, that truth does you absolutely no good. The resurrection is true. The truth of the resurrection demands a response. And I believe the fact of the resurrection, our response, it should be repentance. Our, our response to the resurrection should be repentance. If you'd like to go to Acts 28, I'm not going to spend long. In fact, we're just going to look briefly at just a few verses in Acts chapter 20, or 26. Excuse me. In Acts 26, and I wrote 28 on the, on the slide, but it's Acts 26. In Acts chapter 26, Paul is standing before King Agrippa. And as he stands before King Agrippa, he is going to give a defense of his position, of where he stands and why he's preaching like he's preaching and why he's proclaiming Christ to be, to be the, the savior of the world. And as he is defending himself and as he's presenting himself, he raises a question that must have been a matter of concern for these people. 
Now, the majority of the people he's talking to are Jewish in, in descent and nationality. They, they understood the Jewish customs. In fact, King Agrippa, Paul says when he's talking about him, he says that you know the Jewish customs, verse 3. You're an expert in the customs and the questions which are among the Jews. And as you're listening to me, you know these. So, so King Agrippa was well-versed in the Jewish customs. But in verse 8, it's a really interesting question he poses. He says in, in the King James, it says, Why should it be a thought, a thing incredible with you, that God should raise the dead? In other words, he asks the question, Why does it seem incredible to you that God raised somebody from the dead? In and of itself, that question, Paul, Paul's looking and saying, He's God. He can do whatever he wants to do. He is able to do anything. So if God raises the dead, why is that a question for you at all? You should not be even concerned. And especially for these Jewish people. Because except for the Sadducees, the Jews believed in the resurrection of the dead. They believed fervently in it. And so they already understood and they already accepted the idea of a resurrection. They took that as fact. But what, what they did not appreciate, what they did not like, was that Paul was saying Jesus Christ is the first resurrection. That Jesus Christ raised from the dead. They didn't like them bringing it to Jesus Christ. And as, as Paul addresses this council, he's looking at them and he's going to say the resurrection is factual. It is real. In fact, in Paul's writings... He talks about this a number of times. 1 Corinthians 15, he talks about the eyewitness testimonies of the resurrection. The fact that Peter saw him, that James saw him, that he was seen by 500 other people at one time. That, that he, it wasn't a mass hallucination. These individuals saw Jesus Christ, saw him resurrected and alive. The inability to produce a body. If, if, why, if, if there was a body that was being hidden, why was the body not shown? Why did they not just produce the body? Because Jesus Christ really rose from the dead. And what's interesting, Paul alludes to it. Look in verse 10 and 11. He's going to talk about his life. Paul says, Which thing I also did in Jerusalem, and of many of the saints, I shut them up in prison, having received authority from the chief priests. And when they were put to death, I gave my voice against them. I was a testifier against the Christians, is what he's saying. And I punished them often in the synagogues and compelled them to blaspheme. And being exceedingly mad against them, I persecuted them even unto strange cities. Paul's looking and saying, I was one who used to persecute these Christians. The ones who said that Jesus raised from the dead. The one who gave their life for Christ. I used to persecute them, but now my life has changed through Jesus Christ. And that was the same thing for the other disciples. If the, if the resurrection was not true, then why all these disciples, why would they give their lives to, to be persecuted, to be martyred, to be put to death for something that they would have known to be a lie? Because it wasn't a lie. Because Jesus Christ literally raised from the dead. It is a fact. So the fact of the resurrection, we should respond with repentance. Why do I say we should respond with repentance? What is repentance? Repentance is this idea of turning of the whole person. It is turning away from sin and turning to Jesus Christ, turning to God. It is, it is the, the, the 180, the turnabout. It's a change of our mind, of our will, of our emotions that results in a changed behavior. I've been really challenged by this. That repentance is not just me giving mental assent to saying, oh, I need to do something different. It needs to result in a, a behavioral change. Look down in verse number 20. 
Verse number 20, Paul, Paul looks at them and says to them, it's right at the end, that they should repent and turn to God and do the works meet or fitting for repentance. What a challenge to, to those who are believers here today. That our life, our response to the resurrection should not just be great, I'm going to heaven, but it should be an, an overflowing of works that is fitting for repentance. That, that is saying, I have a different master. I have a different way. I have been taken from, as verse 18 says, to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light and from power of Satan unto God. There, there is a new master in our life. There is a new way, a new understanding, a new thought process. So therefore, the fitting response to the resurrection for those who are believers is to be living a life of righteousness, holiness that is fitting unto God. We ought to be looking and striving to, to be pleasing to God in our life. If you truly believe that Jesus Christ is the risen Savior, you cannot remain the same. You cannot. I cannot. We cannot. There, there has to be a response to the resurrection if you truly believe that he died on the cross. Now, Paul gives a purpose. Paul, Paul says, I used to be this person who persecuted. But Jesus Christ speaking to Paul when Paul was on the road to Damascus, Jesus Christ looks at Paul and says, I'm going to give you a purpose. That's verse 18. Your goal in life, Paul, your purpose is to open their eyes. You're going to go preach to the Gentiles. You're going to tell them about me. You're going to tell them about my resurrection. And that's what, when Paul preaches in 1 Corinthians 15, he talks about the gospel that he preaches. He said that Jesus Christ died, was buried, and three days later rose again. He said, this is the gospel. He said, this is what I'm going to preach and proclaim. And why does he preach and proclaim that? To open their eyes to help turn them from darkness to light and from power, uh, the power of Satan unto God. And he says, I'm preaching this that they may receive something. Look at what he says they may receive, the forgiveness of sins. Now that may seem something small to some of you. You may look and go, okay, I'm just, my sins are forgiven, great. That is, that is weighty theology. That is important to understand. That my sins, your sins, need to be forgiven. Because if our sins are not forgiven, we are doomed. We are damned to an eternity in hell. That is the story that Meredith talked about. That Jesus Christ came to earth to die on the cross to provide for you and I forgiveness of our sins. And Paul says the response to the resurrection, to the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ is this, that I should repent for my sins and turn and trust to God. Because when I do that, I receive the forgiveness of my sins. And what else does he say? An inheritance among them which are set apart or sanctified by faith that is in me, in Jesus Christ. For those who are maybe here today and you're not saved, you've never accepted Jesus Christ as your personal savior. You've never turned from your sins and trusted in Jesus Christ alone. Christ offers to you the forgiveness of your sins through his death. He offers you an inheritance, a home in heaven. Not to be eternally separated from God, which is spiritual death. But to have an eternal home in heaven with eternal life. A wonderful inheritance. And that is what Paul offers to us. Those who turn from their sin and trust in Christ, receive the salvation of their soul from the penalty of sin. 
And I beg you, just like Paul said, Paul says in this passage, when he gets done reading or or responding to Agrippa, he says down in verse number 29, he says this, I would to God that not only you, Agrippa, but also all that hear me this day were both almost and altogether such as I am, except for the, the bonds that he was in. What is he saying? Paul is begging. He is pleading with people. He's saying, everybody within the the sound of my voice, please be as I am, a saved individual, someone who has accepted Jesus Christ as their personal Savior. Do not walk out of this building today unsure of your eternal destiny. Settle that matter today. Know for certain that you are on your way to heaven because you can. That is the power of the resurrection and the gospel. That you can know for certain that you are on your way to heaven. Oh, I beg that you would. It would be for us today to hear this truth, to hear all the truths that are sung, all that have been read about, to hear all of those truths and to walk out of here would be like that old adage. Can you remember? I mean, if I asked everybody to, by raise of hands, who believes that seatbelts save lives? I, I believe most of us would raise a hand and say, absolutely, seatbelts save lives. But could you imagine being that individual who says, I believe that seatbelts save lives, but your tombstone reads this. He believed in seatbelts, but he was not wearing one at the time of the crash. It would be like sitting in here today, hearing about what Jesus Christ has done for you, and then walking out those doors and not settling that eternal matter. You need to apply it to yourself because the response to the fact of the resurrection should be repentance, to turn from your sin and turn to Christ. And I pray and I beg that if anyone is here today and you are not certain you are on your way to heaven, Come and talk with me afterwards. Talk with one of the other pastors. Talk with somebody who invited you today and ask them, how do I know for certain that I am on my way to heaven? They would love, I promise you, they would not look at you weird. They would love to be able to show you how you can know you're on your way to heaven because the response we should have is repentance because when we repent of our sins, that is when we have hope. We have security. We have that guarantee in Christ Jesus. Because Christ is in us. Let's pray together. Father God, I pray that you would work in our hearts, Lord. Thank you for the hope that we have in you. Thank you for the opportunity to be able to worship you this morning. And God, I pray that you would work in the hearts of those who may be here today and are not sure they're on their way to heaven. Lord, I pray that they would respond by coming and talking. They would ask how they can know for certain they are on their way to heaven. Lord, I beg that you would do that today. Lord, we thank you for Christ. We thank you for the gospel. We thank you for how it has changed so many of our lives. And Lord, I pray that today may be the day that some respond and have their lives changed by the salvation of Jesus Christ. So Lord, we give you the praise and honor. With heads bowed and eyes closed, I'm just going to ask the instrumentalist to play a song. And maybe you're here today and you're not certain you're on your way to heaven. And you would like to talk with somebody about it. You would like to know for sure that you have that hope, that guarantee in Christ. If you would like to talk with somebody, we have some of our pastoral staff available at the side door.
If you would like to talk with somebody, why don't you make your way over there at this, at this point? And just ask the person beside you, excuse me, sneak by them. As I mentioned, we'll give you the opportunity. I'll stay here at the front. If you have questions about how to know for sure you're on your way to heaven, I would love to be able to talk with you after the service right down here at the front and show you how you can know that for certain. For God, it's your honor that we give to you today. It's your praise. It's your glory, Lord. We pray that you were, you were magnified, that you were pleased with what was done. And Lord, I pray today that if there's any who are not sure they're on their way to heaven, that they would respond by faith and accept Jesus Christ as their personal Savior. For it's in your name we pray. Amen.